This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from the movies on the big screen to whatever it is you're streaming. My name is Lisa Kovacevic and joining me on tonight's show all the way from Radelaide, it's Stuart Richards. Hi, Stewie. Hi, thank you for having me. What's the vibe over there in old Radelaide? It's good. The weather's a bit crazy. It's a bit on and off uh, with lots of storms one day and really hot the next, but it's overall it's quite nice. And we've just come out of... um, lockdown here quite recently, but not the same for you guys, right? No, we're pretty free at the moment. I think we have to wear masks indoors, but that's about it. Uh, We are counting down though till November 23, because that's when our borders will open. Yes. Um, So it does mean that I get to come home and see family. Well, we can't wait to have you back. Um, Stuart is a lecturer in screen studies at the University of South Australia over there. So I'm hoping he'll bring some intellectual weight to tonight's discussion as I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, Stu, I've got to admit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But on tonight's show, we'll be discussing the new Ridley Scott epic, The Last Jewel, starring Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Adam Driver and Jodie Comer. It's about the last state-sanctioned jewel in medieval France and the Australian drama Nitram about the events leading up to one of the more darker chapters in Australia's recent history, that being the 1996 Port Arthur Massacre. But first, Primal Screen's Flick Ford, who's not in the studio tonight, uh, caught up with filmmaker Robert Machoan. Is that, am I saying that right, Stewie? Machoan? I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I believe you are. I I believe you are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, About his new film, The Killing of Two Lovers. Um, Filmed in Utah, The Killing of uh, the Killing of Two Lovers follows David, played by Clay Crawford, a man desperately trying to keep his family together during a step separation from his wife, Nikki, when they both agree to see other people. David struggles to grapple with his wife's new relationship. Uh, recently, uh, Flick spoke with Robert Machoan about The Killing of Two Lovers and how it came about and the challenge of presenting domestic violence and divorce on screen. But first, here's a clip from the film's trailer. Hey, Alex. Yeah? What do you call a pile of kittens? What? A mountain. Come on, Dad. That is terrible. What a new joke. New jokes? You guys tell me a joke. The dog's always in a push-up position. Mitch Hedberg, search him up. Mitch Hedberg, who's that? Comedian that's actually good. Oh, the bus is here. Bye, Dad. Bye, boys. 
Hello, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. My name is Flick Ford, and today I'm speaking with writer and director of The Killing of Two Lovers, Robert Machoan. Thanks for uh, joining me today, Robert. Oh, thanks for having me. This is exciting. So your most recent film, The Killing of Two Lovers, tells the story of a young couple, David and Nikki, played by Clay Crawford and Zebedee Moafi, in the very recent aftermath of a separation with four young children involved. Nikki has started a new relationship with another man and it's this development that forms the starting point of the narrative. Your film is a very raw and honest portrayal of grief and confusion that often surrounds separation and divorce. Um, but before we get into the film itself, and can you share with us how this story came about? Yeah, it was really born out of... Um people close to me who were starting to separate their relationships mm. were starting to end. And some of them, I actually did not anticipate. I mean, sometimes you're like, I don't know, maybe they'll make it. And, that, and some of you are like, they're fine. They're fine forever. And I was surprised to see that those relationships ending and surprised at how it, it ended. Like the actions of the individuals, um, were often males in particular were often so out of character that I was like, you know, like, can we be friends anymore after that, you know, or should I be talking to you? And the reality was, it was just so outside of who they were that really wasn't them. And the only way for me to gain any type of empathy for the circumstances was to kind of accept that there isn't another environment where this occurs. There isn't another a uh, space where you can give your heart over to somebody and then have them not reciprocate it after say a number of years. Like, oh, maybe this wasn't the right decision. Um, and then the other aspect that I was exploring was, was just seeing grow growth in, um, in relationships and how that, that happened. I had met actually, interestingly enough, I met the director of souvenir and um, Joanne Hogg, at a, at a festival and she shared a story about how her husband was um was planning i think it was thailand he was planning to go for a year and she was not a travel person and really desired to be desired to be home but what her the, the question she kind of said was like what would be what will be different in a year from now if i don't go and he goes mm-hmm. <clears throat> and she was very worried if i go i'm a homebody am i going to ruin he had been preparing for a long period of time to go. And she would, she said to me, like, would I ruin his experience? But they were very much in love. And, and, and I was really like, oh, I guess I never thought about the growth in a relationship, how you become very different. And so I really wanted to, to explore that as well, that, that what, where we're arriving is to an individual, David, who the life he wanted is completely carved out. And we see in his clothing, for example, that he's very like earth. He like belongs there. Um, and and Nikki is growing and having these experiences that she hasn't had because so much identity has been baked in her children that now are going off to school for six hours at a time and allowing for her to actually be, begin to explore her, her own narrative. And so you get someone who's like discovering a new part of them. So she's in red. Um but I wanted that to be part of it so that there weren't really villains. There were people exploring different elements of their lives. And, and those, those decisions were causing collisions. As mm. a result. 
And you start very early with David saying that exact line that Nikki is not the villain here, um, which I thought was really quite quite good to have up at the very start of the film there. Now, The Killing of Two Lovers has been referred to as a rural counterpart to Noah Baumbach's 2019 film Marriage Story with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. Seems to me that while you walk over kind of similar ground, you know, the breakdown of the marriage and all the attending emotional war that results in, your film exists in a very different world to that shown in Bumbuck's work. The use of the word rural to distinguish your film from, from Bumbuck's also speaks to the fact that David and Nikki are working class and their separation and how they manage it is compounded by David's need to care for his ageing father while also picking up odd jobs and doing manual labour. Firstly, what do you think of the comparison made with Bumbuck's film? And secondly, how does class figure into how you presented this story? Yeah, I I always joke that neither Nikki nor David could write a $20,000 check to a lawyer. <laughs> yeah yeah nor would they um and so yeah i mean what what the comparison does in a very interesting way is exactly what you suggested which is addressing class um i mean i know that that he suggests that he wins the macarthur and the result of is how that is how he's able to pay for it but i mean the winning of the macarthur in and of itself is like a big deal and and something very difficult to kind of do in one's life um, but yeah, I mean, I had met a couple when I was out in, in, uh, in Nebraska, or it was actually Junction, Iowa, it was a town of like 84 people. And I, and I really liked the couple a lot and, and I was, you know, kind of admired them and then discovered that they had planned to separate years prior, but couldn't financially afford the cost. Wow. And as a result of that, had figured out how to work their relationship out. They neither one, they couldn't afford to get another place. They couldn't have two houses to live in. They couldn't have, you know, again, uh, you know, I mean, I like the movie, so I, I don't want to sound critical, but driving and flying back and forth from New York, you know, every again, growing up in, in a poor environment, I'm like $500, $500, $500, you know? Yeah. Did you not write in there? Like I fly a lot. So I have miles and all this is just because of my mileage. Um, The rural aspects really important. It it speaks to like the choice to have more children, which rural areas normally do because you just, you decide when you, you live in those environments, not everybody, but most people in those areas decide family is going to be the priority and that work is very secondary. And in this context, you find that David's a handyman and the result of being a handyman means he has access to be at whatever his children need him to be at. At any moment, if they were like, hey, I've got a soccer game, he can hop in the car and take them there. And, and he's created that environment for himself. Um, and so the the life choices are so very different in, in a rural town and the decisions that one makes, which as a result makes things more complicated, you, you know, he, he's set they're separated and he's at his dad's house to which he can see his own home from his father's porch. And, you know, I imagined I, I, I didn't write this, but I imagined like, what would that have been like if David was sitting out there, you know, eating dinner, watching his, the, the new boyfriend playing soccer with his children, <laughs> you know, it's like, there are these things that, that are very different when, when you're separated, when you have States or countries, or even if you're in a bigger town, some of that stuff's removed because you're not present in their life. But in rural America, you're going to be present. And when I was location scouting 
uh, in Kanash and talking to Jeremy Davis, who was our liaison, he actually from from David's house, like where we sh- that street we shot, took me uh, two blocks over and was like, "There's the ex husband, and there's the actual wife with her new husband." He's like, "What you wrote is actually right on this block," and it really for me felt like it, it gave me the license that what I what I had been trying to attempt, but the writing with the purpose of the writing and the telling of the story in this place was kind of was valid it was mm. kind of the green, green light for me I love that you've touched upon proximity there because I think my next question really draws into that as well you know you've shot this film in 4-3 aspect ratio which is you know the default for 35 millimeter celluloid film but it's a lot less common today um, and for listeners who aren't aware what that means uh, basically a 4-3 aspect ratio changes it from the cinematic image from a, a landscape to an almost square um, really similar to a tv screen so I just wonder with thinking about that idea of proximity um, can you talk us through the decision to shoot your film through in a 4-3 ratio yeah, initially Oscar and I had been discussing um, actually four by five because I, I shoot a lot of four by five uh, l- large format photography, and we we started there with our kind of discussion, and we started to talk about a family album and if we could frame this film as it relates to that. Like, could you, could you grab stills from each of these images and see a photograph? And that began to really, that was like the, the intro to the discussion. Hey, what about these ideas? Which is normally what we do. We kind of start there and we look at, at other photographers and artists and kind of see that. And then I started to think about the four, three aspect ratio in, uh, in cinema in early films was, was, early associated to like academic aspect ratio, like the early films of filmmakers, it was like they're learning. So it's cheaper film. This is why you have access to it. And that felt appropriate as I was venturing. This was the first film I would feature. I'd be directing by myself. And so those things, again, another kind of like a layer of information, but it wasn't really until we mounted the camera onto the side of the truck and, and David was sitting there and it was so apparent that you could not see the future and you could not fully understand the past. And that aspect ratio felt like, okay, this is the right thing. He doesn't like he's lost his wife and he doesn't know why. I mean, as we learned in the story, he goes all the way back to high school to writing songs because he's like, <laughs> I don't know where I lost her, but I'll start here and I'll make my way forward. And hopefully somewhere along the way, I'll like figure out where I screwed up. Um, and so he doesn't know. And then forward, he has no clue. He's just scrambling mm-hmm. to like figure it out. And that, and that aspect ratio was one of the driving sequences. And it was like, Clayne was just turning a corner and looked to make sure no cars are coming as they turned the corner. And the emotion that read so prevalent, like, oh, I know everything that's going on in this character, even though nothing's being said that that solidified like the fourth year aspect ratio it was like we we've got to go with this and then we have to deal with the complicated aspects of like how is it going to inform the rest of the the rest of the film 
Mm. And I, I'm kind of intrigued as well by having that closeness, that that uh, intimacy with uh, Clayne Crawford's David. Kind of brought up, it's you know, it is quite a violent film in different ways perhaps to maybe what people think from the, watching the trailer. I mean, here in Australia, one in four women have experienced violence by an intimate partner, and I'm sure statistics are likely similar in the US. And in your film, David really struggles to accept his wife's new partner and contemplates killing him, which, you know, obviously the title kind of uh, refers to. (laughs) Now, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility in portraying this on screen. Did you have any concerns in telling this kind of story? And was it it challenging to present a character like David who, on the one hand, as you said before, he's a very loving and caring father, but he also has these violent inclinations? Yeah, it it is. We have a tendency in, in cinema, I would say, to to shy away from the nuances of discussion. And we tend to do that sometimes uh, on the internet as well. I, I When the internet was first invented, I was like, oh, wow, we're going to like be able to t- really talk about things. And we've kind of created a world where the nuances begin to be kind of not discussed. And that as you lean in, the Saturday Night Live skit I love the most is the the couple sitting around trying to have a discussion and everything careful careful as like someone starts <laughs> to say something you know yeah um, and and i think i think independent cinema has a responsibility to look at the nuances like we've got we've got hollywood handling the big you know action stories the the dramas that are are built to like ex- all of us to relate in some way to it and I really wanted to explore the very nuanced aspect of David, which is this person who's really acting out of character that I felt we all related to. Like we, we related that, that in context, we do things in our lives we wish didn't exist or that we wished we could remove. So what became really important is that we never really, outside of that opening the sequence, which is so very scary, we don't really experience as it relates to him and David, any type of history of violence. There's not a way in which he kind of approaches her or interacts with her that you're like, this could be scary or she could be in danger. And I hoped that that would, that would communicate to the audience that like, again, that we're dealing with a very specific period of time. If we, if we ran into David today, none of what we witnessed in the movie, would we, we'd be like, Oh, he's actually kind of cool. Like that's, I don't know. That's weird. That would be the action if we had known the movie, right? Mm. Um, because I think we all do that. And, and specifically, I, it, as it relates to toxic masculinity, I think there are, you know, we're having this dialogue, which is really healthy and really positive, but we still have the remnants of, you know, uh, of John Wayne. It's still there. You know, I was still raised to like admire like the tough guy and the masculine type. I still deal with men in my lives who like let me know they could kick my ass like for and i'm like and i'm like why is that still like that still matters if you beat me up <laughs> <You know? laughs> but there those remnants are still there like if if you back a man in a corner still he'll like try and fight his way out over talking his way out uh, and it reminds me of like they say like raccoons and monkeys if you put you know a pot a, an object in a cage like a, a ball or say or something they could eat they would like they'll con they'll get stuck because they will not let go of their hand to get it out you wow. build their hand and they have these traps 
And the, this aspect, these elements of, to, of to, toxic masculinity, even, even for people or men who become aware of it, it's always below the surface in many ways. And I think it will take many generations to, to get at it. But I thought there was value in exploring someone who's trying to. Like he's attempting to let Nikki have this space. He's like, like you, you know, she's she's figuring it out. We're figuring it out. Ah! Like, I don't, how are we figuring it out? You know, that yeah. opening discussion that he has with her, even though it's very subtle as the kids go off, he's trying to be like, Hey, how are we still figuring this out? What do you, you tell me what I'm supposed to be doing to save you. And she really doesn't have the answer. Like there's not a list of like do 10 things and then our marriage is okay. Yeah. I, I do love that. Like David as a character and that tightly wound tension between them is actually also carried through in the, in how you formally shot it as well with that closeness there as well. And, and the soundscape is exceptional. I'm not sure if you can speak to what exact instruments were used, but there's some wonderful moments that sound almost mechanical. And then the string instruments, I really wasn't sure what was going on there, but it was beautiful. Yeah. Peter Albrechen and I, we've been working together for a couple of years now and he really, as we discussed, this movie was, we knew we were laying the kind of cards on the table here with the sound. And that, and and he really suggested that the sound begin. I was really interested in music concrete. He was exploring the artists I was sending him. And then he said, you know, we're just going to pull from David's life. What What is regularly appearing? And so we have the door shutting often. We have the creaking of metal, the, the twisting of wood, the sound of cows, you know, all of those things began to be the instruments within the score. And then there was a lot of just like, how do we kind of communicate those elements? Even there's just like, boom, that kind of like occurs throughout. But it's like, it's even though I know it's a musical instrument, it's actually in line with like hitting big drums, like big oil drums and others. And so it was really like pulling like those aspects so that the audience would understand like David is being tortured by his own mind without us having to do voiceover that's doing exactly that. Yeah, no, it was beautifully communicated. And I honestly loved this film so much. I really did think it was, yeah, it was exceptional. I was really um, moved by it for an hour and 25 minutes. Communicates a lot. I'll admit I'm starting to fall in love with the kind of 90-minute storytelling. I really think there's a lot of value in it. And I'm trying to explore it more and more. Uh, Pitching to studios is a bit of a challenge because they want like all the, uh, they lay into you know, Socrates and that there needs to be three acts or Aristotle, whoever it was, there needs to be three acts and there needs to be subplots and plots. And I'm like, you know, in the 90 minute, we could just like play around with one idea or one thought process yeah. and leave the like complex unpacking to like a, a TV series. Because I do, you know, a lot of the films in the 70s that I really uh, like, I was just talking to my friend about Cockfight and how like, I'm like, okay, it's a brutal movie because they're really fighting roosters that you really wander around with this character who does like not know what they're really doing in life, but just kind of wandering along. And I'm like about an hour and a half is about what you need for that. So anyways, yeah, it was exciting to get to experiment with it and killing two lovers and, and that it worked because it was so, we had such a short period of time to shoot. And I, I was put in a position where I had to be very precise about, about things so I was glad. I mean, I walked away being like, I don't know if we have a movie, but we have cool scenes. I do know that. (laughs) (laughs) But you definitely have a very good film on your hands. 
It's been such a pleasure chatting with you, Robert. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. This is really great. So excited to be in, in Australia. I mean, I, I've been watching, a, I just recently talked with uh, David Mitchad's production company and was like, Rover is by far my favorite film. And I watched the that whole group of guys when they were making their shorts. So it's neat for me. Congratulations on the film. It's, it's definitely stuck with me. So oh, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R, and that was Flick Ford speaking with the director and writer of the American film The Killing of Two Lovers, which is now screening at select cinemas. Triple R. The next film on tonight's uh, list is The Last Jewel, but before we get into that, here's a clip. You knew what would happen to me should you lose this jewel. You knew and you didn't tell me. God will not punish those who tell the truth. My fate and our child's fate will be written not by God's will, but by which old man will tire first. How dare you speak to me this way? What have I to lose? I begged you to find another way and now I might be burned alive. I am risking my life for you. Hmm. You are risking my life. So you can fight your enemy and save your pride. And that could render our child an orphan. Or did you not think of that? That was a clip from the new period drama, The Last Jewel. Set in 1300s medieval France, Matt Damon plays Jean de Carouge, a respected knight known for his bravery and skill on the battlefield. His friend Jacques Legree, played by Adam Driver, is a squire whose intelligence and eloquence make him one of the most admired nobles in court. When Legree viciously assaults Carouge's wife, Marguerite de Marguerite de Carouge, which is played by Jodie Comer, she steps forward to accuse her attacker of rape, an act of bravery and defiance that puts her life in jeopardy, uh, which is the scene we just heard play out there. The ensuing trial by combat, a gruelling duel to the death, places the fate of all three in God's hands. Whichever combatant is still alive at the end of the duel will be declared the winner as a sign of God's will. If Jean de Carouge loses the jewel, his wife is to be burned at the stake as punishment for her false accusation or bearing false witness. Directed by Ridley Scott, the film is an adaptation of the 2004 novel The Last Jewel, a true story of trial by combat in medieval France by Eric Jagger who's an English professor from the University of California and whose book is compiled from documents and writings of the time. According to Jagger, the film accounts for at least 75% historically accurate material, maybe more. The film manages to stick generally close to the actual historical encounters where where it departs from its source material is the film's final act, which is written from the woman's perspective. This is something that not even court records and historical papers could provide, however, but it does complete the thematic arc of Scott's film. The majority of the first two acts of the script were penned by Damon and Affleck, their first co-writer credits since Good Will Hunting. Act one presents the events leading up to the duel from the perspective of the victim's husband and act two from the perspective of the alleged perpetrator. Act three was written by Nicole Holfsener and, round and rounds out the film with the woman's perspective. Ben Affleck has said he saw the story as one trying to reveal the untold history of women. They brought in Holfsener to write the woman's perspective to give her more dimension, but hers had had little source material to draw from, as I mentioned, given that history has been in large part written by men and about the male perspective. So, Stuart, what did you make of uh, the male perspective in this film or the three chapters? How did you feel about the structure of it? 
I thought it was really problematic. I was really quite disturbed by this film. I think as a method to unravel this mystery or unravel this narrative of who's telling the truth, what actually happened, mm. I, I think that in itself is fascinating because there are some scenes that get replayed multiple times and, you know, when we have a new character's perspective, we read about that scene from, you know, from their emotional point. And I think that's fascinating uh, where uh, the um, Adam Driver character, it's almost like Jodie Comer is flirting with him in some scenes or kind of, you know, leading him on when in actual fact that's not what happens. It was diplomacy, wasn't it? She was, from her perspective, it was just just political diplomacy. Yeah, but where I think it becomes um, quite disturbing is the end of the second act, which is from Adam Driver's character's perspective, is when this rape takes place. And he's the perpetrator, we should say. Yes, yes, he is the perpetrator. And, I mean, it is from his perspective. So the the way that scene is shot is from his point of view. Um, The focus of that scene is him. And I get the reason behind that because that entire arc or that entire act is from his perspective but when you have this very real incident taking place um, and not just this historical incident but something that tragically many women and some men go through you know watching this when it's from his perspective and it privileges his point of view I think that I think is really quite disturbing. Um, yeah. I, I, I feel the same as you, Stuart. I question why there was a need to film the sexual act at all. Like, what, yeah. you know, because uh, what they're, what he's, I think what, you know, Ridley Scott is sort of saying, so by the third act, it's their attempt at a Me Too movie, uh, movie essentially is, was my yes. take from it. Um, so they're sort of an attempt to rewrite history and yet so much of the screen time is dedicated to men and the male perspective. It's kind of astounding and I don't mm. feel that Jodie Comer gets, or her character, um, Magritte, gets um, a great deal to say beyond perhaps advising her husband on political matters, but you don't really get too much depth out of her character. But beyond that, showing uh, the, the sexual act from the male perspective, and so he he sees it as I think he he says some comment at one point like she made the usual protest protestations, but you know she was complicit. Um, hmm. And that is very much his take on things, and so much so that even in the audio track they have her sounds of protest to him are read as sounds of pleasure. Yeah. Um, uh, and I just – and then we get the third act, which is from the victim's perspective in, in where it is a horrific act. It is what, mm. it, what it is. But I feel like Scott is then saying we can only believe the victim when we can see it. So, yes. I, yeah. you know, and I'm, I think that, that that's a b- the big misjudgment there. I think we should believe the victim. If anything we've learnt from the Me Too movement is we should just believe the victim. Why do we need to see it visually? There's never any cameras in these incidents, and especially not in medieval France. Um, I thought that was a real misjudgment. And I think when such um, a serious uh, you know, event is depicted, I think the film has to develop a level of trust with the audience. You know, the director and the screenwriter and the actors themselves almost have to say to the audience member, trust us. We will take you on this journey and you can trust us that what we're going to put you through um, is dealt with in a very serious and respectful way. 
And by the time the end of that second act occurs, I was hating this film. And it's, I think genuinely, I think it's a really bad film. Yes. Um, I think the production design is stunning. They capture the historical detail really well, but the accents are awful. They're so like, off-putting, aren't they? I'm just like laughably <laughs> bad. Like yeah. Matt Damon comes out wearing like a mullet. Yes, like as if who he's knew? Straight up. Mullets were so big in the 1300s. Did you know that Billy Ray Cyrus was like living <laughs> a with mullet the and a goatee? Yes, and. And and he has this very thick American drawl, yep. which when his character's yelling, I'll sue you, I'll sue you, in a thick American <laughs> accent, it was laughably bad. Was. And then we've got Ben Affleck with this, like, bleach blonde hair being this king. And then we have Adam Driver constantly, like, you know, shifting from American to a British accent for some reason. And then we've got Jodie Comer who is brilliant trying to save this film. She is. Yes, she does. She really holds it up. But I think where it even gets more just weird is that you have all of these supporting cast members who some have very thick French accents. Mm. Um, Matt Damon's mum, even though it's a British actress, she has this very thick New York-like accent. She does, yeah. And it's just it's it's so bad that the, when this you know, very heavy scene takes place, that trust with the audience is lost. And then I feel that it's like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck coming in, these big shot heroes from Hollywood, giving their Me Too film, you know, letting the female screenwriter have her moment in the third act. It seems so tokenistic, didn't it? It is, it is. And then that really violent duel at the end overshadows these moments that are meant to be about Jodie Comer's character. Mm, And I just find that completely disrespectful. Yes. Um, And I'm shocked that people love this film. Me too. I mean, they, me too. (laughs) They, um, they really, he, he just spends far too much time on battlefields and not enough time pulling apart the um, machinations of what's really happening here. Um, and and like you say, giving more weight to Jodie Comer's character, which surely is what it should all be about. Instead, it plays out like a vanity piece to Affleck and Damon in my mind. Um, yeah. And it really made me think, because when the Me Too movement happened, uh, Matt Damon did not have a good a good reaction to it and was criticised for his comments on um, ABC's Popcorn in which he said all men accused of sexual harassment and assault shouldn't be lumped together because there's a spectrum of behaviour um, and in which, in which you know, he was trying to say, you know, Louis C.K. is not as bad as Weinstein or what have you. And then more recently he made comments about using the F slur for gay men in which his daughter had to educate him on why that was not okay. And I, I feel like these men are quite out of touch and it shows through quite richly in this film, sadly, um, you know, because it's a fantastic story, really. Like there, there is so is. many places it could have gone. I mean, it's it's set in a time where women were treated as property, um, mm. you know, not as human beings. And, and, and this uh, court-sanctioned duel that they're fighting – uh, is really as much a fight about um, their own honour, their own ego, and property. It's a, and, and I, you know, that could have been pulled apart in much more interesting ways. I thought. Yeah, I think there are there are nuances and grey areas there, particularly with the Matt Damon character, where he's an asshole. He's violent to his wife, and, and he, he's he reacts to this way as his property has been violated rather than his wife has been attacked, and there are some. In the third act, I noticed that there are moments of 
I, moments of brilliance where men will be behaving badly and then you will have their wife, who doesn't really have a name um, in the script, which is an issue, um, kind of just being really visibly uncomfortable beside them, but they can't do anything because they're property, basically. And those moments I think are really fascinating. And I wanted more of those moments and I wanted to hear from those women and I wanted those characters to be unpacked more. But instead it's just this grandstanding between Matt Damon and, and Adam Driver. And just overall I was very uncomfortable watching this film. Me too. Um, look, The Last Jewel is currently screening on wide release here in Australia. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Our next film we're going to discuss tonight is uh, Nitram, but I'll hand it over to Stuart to do the intro, but first here's a clip. What exactly is going on here? Sorry, I don't know what you mean. He mows your lawn, you buy him a car. He mows it again, he moves in with you. What's next, marriage? He needed a car. He doesn't have a licence. I didn't know that. Yes, well, I guess you don't know everything. Don't you have your own children? No. I've got a husband. So which is he? A husband or a son? That was a clip from Nitram, directed by Justin Kurzel, who has brought us wonderful films including Macbeth, The True History of the Kelly Gang and Snowtown, a film which I think closely resembles the unsettling tone of this one. Composing the film's score is his brother, Jed Kurzel, and I loved his score for Macbeth. Sean Grant writes the film, who also wrote the screenplay for Snowtown. The film has created a bit of a furor as it depicts the events leading up to the 1996 Port Arthur Massacre. The film gets its title from the nickname given to the shooter. As a result, his real name is not mentioned at all in the film. Nitram, played by Caleb Landry-Jones, is a loner who is mocked by many and is misunderstood by his parents, Judy Davis and Anthony Lepalia, who struggle to manage their son's increasing outbursts. Nitram befriends the eccentric and lonely millionaire Helen, played by the wonderful Essie Davis. Uh, Helen lives in a sprawling mansion with several dogs running free across the property. Uh, Nitram moves in and she bestows gifts upon him, including a car. The film has reignited a debate that many films have been at the centre of. How long should we wait till we tell the story of a deeply traumatic event? Lisa, is it too soon to tell this story? Yeah, I, I actually felt that it is too soon. Um, but, and I question whether, it, I don't know that it needs to be told. I don't know that, I don't know that I'm, I'm getting anything. It's interesting that they call it Nitram, as you said, said in your intro, because, uh, they're avoiding using the perpetrator's real name, the killer's real name, because they don't want to, uh, glorify him. But I do wonder if this is false modesty, because the whole film is about him. The whole film, the camera lingers on him. But, and you know, the, it's interesting because uh, this is a film that's just as, much, uh, just as much about the parents as it is about him. And 
I would have liked to see that explored a little more deeply. It did remind me of uh, the film We Need to Talk About Kevin, uh, about which was made some years ago now about a young boy uh, who's clearly troubled and uh, grows up to commit a similar weighted crime, but it's about how do the parents um, manage and develop that child and nurture that child, protect that child. Um, I felt like Judy Davis's character as the mother, um, the stern mother, um, was quite interesting because, you know, she... At first I thought, oh, they're very harsh on women in, in these films. It's similar to Snowtown, you know, that, that these maternal figures are very um, hard, cold, heavy women that have these kind of strong influences on their male sons that are sort of struggling with Australian masculinity. Uh, and I do wonder why it falls on the women that in these films. Similar, the Essie Davis character of Helen is kind of the opposite, the antithesis of the mother. She's um, She's not putting up any boundaries. Uh, uh, And and I'll just question what they're trying to say there. What did you make of that? It's interesting that when watching this film and The Last Duel, Mm. I found myself asking, like, what's the point of the film? Yeah. And for The Last Duel, I mean, it was like, what's the point? I don't think these screenwriters are really equipped to tell this story. But when I was watching Nitram, I think the key for me was there's that scene where he watches the news report of the Dunblane Scottish massacre. Mm. massacre. And in that clip, you know, there are, there's, uh, I think, police and uh, detectives and townspeople who are all saying that this evil visited our town, this otherworldly monstrosity did this act. Mm. And I think that's almost like commentary on uh, the characters in the film, but also maybe the way we've talked about Port Arthur, where, you know, when someone does something really horrible or monstrous, I I think it does a disservice to, uh, I mean, everyone involved just to say that it was this monster, this sort of boogeyman, where in actual fact, you know, this town creates this monster and, Throughout yeah. the film, there are several moments where, you know, there are alarm bells going and it, they, they left get left unchecked. So there's the, the I guess, the scene with the doctor. And then there's this really troubling scene at the, um, in, the in this gun shop mm. where he doesn't have a licence and the guy's like, yeah, sure, have more guns, have more bullets. Well, he says he has a big bag full of money, doesn't he, or something yeah. like that. And so, it, you know, he, he, he's very dubious, that character. But also for the Nitram character, for him it's just like going to a toy shop though, isn't it? Because, he, it you know, dad gave him a gun when he was young to play with. He doesn't see them as being as for what they are, I suppose. They're just toys to him. Yeah, it's interesting. I felt like this was more a story for an American audience than it was for an Australian one because it's really about gun law controls and which we know as a result of this massacre, within 12 days uh, there was a, a gun, do they call it a buyback scheme? Um, yeah, but interestingly with the the, the, the kind of the title cards that come up, up at the end, they do mention that, and this is not a spoiler, mm. uh, but... Um, they say that, but they also have the caveat that no state or territory in Australia fully adheres to those laws and that we currently have more guns circulating in Australia 
than before Port Arthur. But that's Arthur. misleading because we ha- we might have more guns circulating, but we have less people with gun licences. So those people with the licences may have more guns than before. I felt like they were using that as a way to justify the film. Uh, similarly, I-, I thought the casting of, um, is it Caleb? Uh, Caleb Landry Landry Jones, Jones. Who, yeah. who I actually think is very, very good in, very good in the role. And talking about accents, Stuart, like the, Previous film, shocking, absolutely shocking, <laughs> you know, Americans not even trying to put on <laughs> some sort yeah. of British accent or French accent. Um, whereas Caleb it really excels at the Australian accent. It it's remarkable. It actually took me a while to figure out who he was. I was like, I know this actor, but I mm. couldn't place him because he's American and I've seen him in Get Out and other films. But he did a wonderful job. I, I wondered if they'd cast him because they're looking to speak to an American audience. I know that the writer, Sean Grant, decided to do the film in about 2008, he said, um, after a series of mass shootings. He was living in LA and a series of mass shootings had occurred and it sort of solidified his reasoning for making the film. Um, but I don't feel like – you know how you said uh, the, the town really creates this monster? I, I didn't – I don't know that they – that came across enough for me because really he's a, he's also a child with mental health, like serious yeah. mental health issues. And yes, the, there's there's not the supports that required to to prevent such an atrocity. But I don't know that we could have presented pre- prevented such an atrocity. His parents were good, seemed to be good parents, you know, that yeah. were doing their best. And I just, you know, the the horror of it is that there is no reason for it, really, you know. I found that to be the most horrific thing. Mm. Yeah. I, I I think the uh, scenes with Essie Davis, um, the Helen character, I personally found quite fascinating because that was an entire side to his history that I had no idea about. I had no idea that he lived with this wealthy woman and... Had that relationship. Both- yeah, and that they both kind of just fed into each other's mania in a way mm. with all of the dogs and the musicals. and Yes, they bonded over um, musicals. That's right. <laughs> they would sing them together in the car. Yeah, it's – um. look, I don't know. Part of me felt a little uncomfortable, a little bit like the same way that – is it Hillbill Elegy? Is that the name of that film that was yeah. sort of criticised for poverty porn and Oscar bait? And I feel a little bit uncomfortable with this film. I feel like it fits a similar category, the, the way that the camera hovers over Nitram uh, in a way that's judgmental almost. I don't – I just – there was an uncomfortableness for me that I'm still trying to put my finger on because I literally just finished watching it before yeah. we jumped on it. <laughs> I don't think we're meant to feel sorry for him, though. No, I mean, definitely obviously, not. No. Obviously not. But I, I think the point of this is that he is quite damaged, I think, with his mental health, but also being left to his own devices in this big house in the end. And and I, I think maybe the tragedy of it all is that there's no one to kind of put a stop to any of this escalation. And he's left to his own devices because his parents struggle to cope. And, and I think that is almost, uh, with the camera work almost being this like objective kind of bystander, it's almost like we're in that house with him 
trapped and we can't do anything about it and it just gets worse and worse um and i think maybe that's the tragedy here that you know we we need more mental health services to support individuals who um don't have that kind of safety net yeah that get left behind um well if you're interested nitrum is a film currently on limited release but it's set to be released on the streaming platform stan later this month if you're just not ready to enter the big wide world and attend the cinema um and tonight we also discuss Ridley Scott's latest medieval epic, The Last Jewel, currently on wide release. Flick Ford interviewed Robert Machoans. Oh, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I feel like I've butchered that name. Robert Machoan about his new film, The Killing of Two Lovers, which is currently on limited release. Stuart, thank you so much for your insights tonight. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 